So my friends, let's delve into the components of responsive behavior supports. Digging into component number one, responsive relationships. We hear as educators all the time, relationships, relationships, relationships. What are responsive relationships and why are they so integral to responsive behavior supports? We do hear relationships, 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 and the importance of relationships all the time, but it's for good reason because we all need relationships and connection and not just any connection. We need a healthy relationship and a healthy connection. And, you know, as educators, we're in a prime position to provide that for our students, not saying that we're the only healthy relationship that they have, but we're part of a network of many healthy relationships uh, within our school, within our communities, within families, and every healthy relationship supports that child further. So in terms of um, relationships, you know, I saw something um, as I was working with a partner that really, uh, it made a strong impression on me, and it, it, it really honored the the children in the process. And what had happened was the, the Cree language and culture team in the school I was with really um, honors, respects, and knows the, the absolute essential nature of relationships. And they had the children, um, as they um, came through their classes, create a bracelet. And then they toured the children through the school, um, everywhere in the school from the, you know, classrooms, library, counseling department, administration, everywhere. The, the, the kids got to see um, all the adults in the school and they gave the bracelet to an adult that they felt particularly connected with, that they felt that that, that was a person that they could go to in the building. And I thought that was just such a a magic thing to do because it gave the children the voice in um, who's that special person that I can turn to in this school where as an adult you don't always know that so I thought it was a, a really nice way of honoring those uh, relationships and bringing them to the forefront and letting the adults in the building know that there were a certain group of students who felt really connected to them so that meant that they could go the extra mile with those children not that they don't build relationships with all children but just that that piece of awareness that they're the important one of the important adults in that child's life I thought that was so key so um you know we we have a friend and um, former colleague Barb who always says you can't teach a child until you have their hearts and I think that really is so key when we remember um, the role of relationships in uh, responsive behaviors. That is just one of the foundational components is having that strong relationship, that connection with the student. So once we have that, um, that trusting relationship and that positive relationship built, it creates a sense of safety and belonging. So then the child can uh, move forward with their learning. Well, I think Kathleen said it really well, but you know, that, that understanding that relationships are the foundation to build everything else onto. So if we don't have that foundation to start with, it's very difficult to move forward with, with the other things that we want to teach children that we're working with. And so to, to know that it is the starting place of, of everything. 
So as we move into component two, social emotional instruction. So one of the things that struck me is that we're talking about social emotional instruction before we even get into diagnosing behavior or identifying behavior or anything behavior related. So can you talk to me about social emotional learning and why it's so important and how it's connected to responsive behavior supports? Well, I think it's important to recognize that um, that social emotional realm is such an integral part of, of how we act. <laughs> and so if children don't know how, then they can't do. And so to recognize that as teachers, that that social emotional skill set that kids come into a building with is, a, is our starting place. So teaching kids, um, you know, how to regulate if they don't know how, um, making sure that kids understand what their emotional states are. And that social emotional curriculum, I think, um, has changed the game in terms of our understanding of what behavior is all about. So we remember that you know, behavior is communication. And so if a child is trying to communicate a need that we don't recognize, but they don't have the skills and the social emotional realm to communicate in a way that's understood by everyone, um, that comes across as behavior that's, you know, unexpected or challenging behavior. And so we can, we can take things from a totally different angle when we understand you know, maybe what social emotional um, skill set the kids are coming in with and, and recognizing what they need and how we can teach them to, to react and, and interpret information that's coming at them in, you know, the relationships that they're developing with their peers and with the adults in the building around them and then even beyond the school to really understand those, those social connections and then how to interpret emotional responses within that. You know, even, you know, adults uh, don't do so great with this, <laughs> recognizing where, the, where their emotional skill set, when you think of, you know, road rage and, and things like that, people being able to control their emotions and respond accordingly in a, in a safe manner that um, keeps everyone around them feeling safe and, and acting safe. Colette, I love what, what you said about how um, you know, this it's something that we need to teach students. And I, I feel like this is why this is a, a tier one component in our responsive behavior. If we're imagining a continuum of supports, you know, social emotional instruction would fall into the very foundational learning around behavior. And I, th I think, you know, the thing that strikes me about behavior and responsive behavior is this isn't really about classroom management. This is about helping students develop into well-rounded citizens so they are able to contribute their gifts to their communities, the world, whatever it may be, and they can live a, a fulfilled life. So Kathleen, talking about the tier one of, of social emotional instruction, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And it makes me think back to you know, when I first entered the teaching profession 25 years ago or so, <laughs> but um, it was known as the hidden curriculum and it was not explicit. It was like, if you were a really 
I think with it, teacher, it was part of your instructional practice, but nobody really talked about how you went about doing it. And now that there are, you know, social emotional curriculums that, that come in, like with Castle, um, that help build that tier one, so that regardless of um, the class, the grade, that it's actually explicitly taught and expected that it's, it's taught in schools now. And this is, this is just my reflections on responsive behavior in, in general, is it's not just about school. It's not just about the classroom or, you know, succeeding within the institutions that we have in our education system. It's about succeeding in life. And, you know, all of these components are really meant to support students in achieving that ultimate goal of becoming you know, um, fulfilled within themselves, becoming, um, you know, a well-rounded citizen, whatever that looks like in their life and with the, their personality and with the gifts that they bring to the table. It all is um, speaking to a greater goal as kids move forward. So you've both spoken about tier one. So as we shift into component three, which is routines and classroom environment, how is this a tier one component and how does this, how do these universal supports impact behavior in the classroom? I think one of the things that I think of right away is the analogy that I heard once about, you know, if you put, if you put an individual in a dark room on a chair with no light coming in from anywhere and no windows, you would want to get off that chair and define your space so that you understood where you were. Um, and the confines of the room that you were in. And I, I think about the, the routines and um, the environment that we create for our students are such a critical component in terms of kids understanding uh, how to interact in their environment, to know what to expect, and to feel regulated and calm in that environment because they know what's expected every day. And I think that that calm, consistent routine is so important, especially when we start considering things like, you know, if a student has come in with, with trauma in their lives, for example, that routine is absolutely calming and, and regulating to them to know that every day my teacher's going to be standing at the door and I'm going to put you know, my, my coat and my boots in the same place every day. And that consistency is something that makes them feel safe. And so it kind of goes, you know, across the board. You know, I think as far as routines and classroom environment, we can be so intentional about how we set up our routines, how we set up our classroom, um, you know, thinking ahead to what is going to be the most efficient, effective space physically and, you know, with it structurally with our, you know, our classroom structures, what will be the most effective space for learning for our students and Colette, that sense of safety. I think that really brings it home because this is now when we come into a classroom, we know what to expect. We know what to do. That's one less thing that we have to worry about, especially for our students who, like you said, 
are coming into our rooms with trauma that we may or may not know about or our students have some anxiety or even have had a you know a bad night's sleep they come in and they know like you said here's where I put my boots I don't need to decide that I know where it goes it's one less thing off there off their plate to worry about and their safety in that predictability I'm going to contribute a comment here <laughs> I think one of the things that really hit home for me, even teaching junior high and high school was the need to teach those routines and practice those routines that it's not ingrained from day one. And so when you front load that, that first week with truly practicing what those routines are so that students learn them and they become part of the inherent process rather than just stating I mean we expect teenage kids to understand a statement but really they still need to know how it's expected to enter the classroom how they ask for a pencil how they ask to go back to their locker for the things that they forgot <laughs> I was just going to say it's interesting because what what you're talking about is really the development of executive functioning skills so those routines actually help develop those executive functioning skills with kids um, you know and, and we know that we're not born with executive functioning skills and for different reasons um, you know kids come to us with either well-developed or not developed at all uh, skills and through those routines and, and procedures and, and structures in our classrooms we can help students develop them over time too. You know and aside from the you know, like you said, Colette, developing the executive functioning skills is when we have those routines and when we have those classroom structures, there's our container for learning, you know, because students know what to do and they're, you know, they're thinking about less, they're less distracted. There's more space for learning to happen. We know we're going to have our mini lesson and then we're going to break out into small groups and here's how we work together in a group and we know these things. So we're not um, distracted by those other organizational pieces, it's been organized for us. So now we can take care of the business of learning. As we shift from those routines and structures <laughs> and procedures that we're teaching students, we move into component four, which is those explicit behavior expectations. What are some ways that we as educators can be explicit in those behavior expectations to develop that commonly understood guidelines for behavior? And how do we do so in a way that demonstrates our commitment to learners? I think something that's really key uh, with explicit behavior expectations is the co-creation of those expectations with students because they need to take ownership for their classroom community. We want that. We're together as a community, as teachers, we are leading and coaching in that community, but we need to make it theirs. This is their classroom. This is their community together. And when they take ownership of it, then they are um, much more empowered. They've taken ownership. They know um, they've agreed to their peers that this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it together. So then it's, it's theirs. It's not mine this is our space together and we're going to move forward together 
I think of it too, like this is how we're going to honor each other. But as the leader in that community, as the teacher, you can be really strategic in how you can, you know, continue to build that classroom culture with, um, you know, honoring diversity and including all voices. Those are things that you can add into the mix as a teacher. But as far as those um, expectations and building those expectations, that's a, a co-creation item for sure. I, I agree 150%. <laughs> I also, just to add, like I think that once those are created, the visual representation uh, of them within your classroom and within a school, I think, um, really is important in terms of, you know, it's just like going into a washroom and seeing that sign there that says, you know, wash your hands. <laughs> I think, I think for, for kids to see the visual representation and with younger kids, you know, to have them see what it, what the expectations are, for example, to sit at the carpet. So if they can always see what it looks like at the carpet, you know, sitting crisscross applesauce and eyes on the speaker and whatever, whatever those expectations are that you co-create with your students are then translated into a visual. So with our older kids, those are in, in words probably, but pictures as well, um, just to give that, I guess, reinforcement all the time that, oh yeah, this is what it looks like. And I think it makes it um, more powerful in the classroom when they're visually presented. Your discussion of a visual, Colette, brings me back to some work that I know Barb did around behavior matrices or the behavior matrix for a classroom or school. Can either of you elaborate on, on what that is and why that's important? Well, I think, you know, in terms of having a, a behavior matrix in a school, um, it can be, you know, what are the expectations in all these different locations within a school? You know, what does my voice sound like? Uh, what is my body doing? What is, uh, you know, all of these, these different behaviors that we expect to see and hear? Uh, what does it look like, sound like, feel like uh, in the library? What does it look like in the hallway? And so you create this, you know, essentially like a poster, but it's a matrix of those expectations for our behavior, you know, throughout a building. It can be super powerful. If I can add on to that, um, I'd like to just um, talk about the, the power of having students share examples uh, of what this looks like as well, whether they're drawing a picture of here's what I do on the playground or, um, you know, collaborating in a group about, well, what does this look like? when we're in a hallway and talking about those explicit things that we will see and sometimes non-examples as well. So moving into component five, we start to see that shift from tier one where these are the universal things we're doing with and for all students into sort of a tier two, because we're talking now in component five about responding to behavior concerns, which is a shift more into a school-wide behavior procedure. Can you tell us a little bit more about responding to behavior concerns and how that is a part of responsive behavior supports? I know for myself, when I, when I think about this, I, I think of the programs like zones of regulation, for example, where you have a common language that's built throughout a school with common visuals. 
so that the expectations are developed um, school-wide for, for behavior and, um, you know, really simple in terms of, you know, there are visuals in the hallways, for example, that show, you know, what kinds of behaviors are expected in the hallway. Um, so whether that's in a behavior matrix. But when we start look going into tier two, it's because we've got perhaps some skill deficits and we might not know the, the roots of the behavior that we're seeing. And so we start, you know, doing things a little bit differently to collect some information about what's going on for a child and what skill deficits they might uh, might have. So we were talking earlier about that social emotional piece. So if we've got students who are not able to regulate um, and follow the expected procedures and routines that are put in place, then we, we look deeper to find out, you know, what's going on for the child and how we can support the development of the skills that they're, they're needing to develop, as opposed to a punishment uh, so we, we come at them from a, a skill that they need as opposed to this like punitive, um, send them to the office and put them in a timeout room, skipping recess. Like we, we need to kind of look at it differently and say, okay, well, you know, what's happening? What's going on? What skills do they need to develop? And how do we put in a plan? You know, at, at tier one and two, we're, we're talking about classroom supports. So what things can a teacher do or an educational assistant do to help support the learning of the expected behavior for a child? You know, when, when you're addressing um, student behaviors, like you said, they're, you know, moving from that idea of punishing versus teaching. I think at this level now, it, it's really important to, to develop that staff-wide understanding about the roots of behavior. So we all, like in addition to the common language, like the you know, you might see in um, zones of regulation, for example, or if you're using a school-wide um, social-emotional program, there's a common understanding of the roots of behavior. So we have um, staff responding to behavior in similar ways um, at this point. So we have all teachers, if they, you know, if they see somebody wandering in the hallway, do, how do they respond to that child? So that child is receiving that consistent support from all staff in the school rather than um, a punishment directed um, response in one instance and a supportive response in another instance. And um, just to really, you know, develop that network that supports the child rather than having mixed messages. Maintaining a focus on this responding to behavior concerns. We've talked about this being tier two, going at it from a positive perspective that students have the capacity to learn the expected behavior. What kind of supports have you seen used in the classroom that have assisted in this process for students? Oh, everything from, you know, modeling expected behaviors. I think about um, how fun it is to, uh, do activities like that with kids sometimes where you model uh, expected behavior in the hallway and unexpected behavior and the, and the kids enjoy doing those kinds of things, um, that concept, conceptual attainment. So give me a, a yes example and a no example. Um, so we can go through things like that in terms of 
um, those routines and procedures in, in the classroom and in the both the school. Um, the visual representation of what's expected is also one of those things that really helps kids understand what they need to do when they don't know what to do. <laughs> and um, I think just, you know, it comes down to relationships. So if you've got those foundational relationships with kids and they trust you, um, it's really important when they are elevated uh, in their emotional state that they, they trust you in the classroom and they trust you in the hallway so that they, they, can, they can come to you instead of, um, you know, even when they don't know what to do, if you've approached them in a, in a calm way, um, that they know that you're a safe place, you can actually work within that um, space, I think. I mean, not all the time. I mean, there's times when kids are beyond that place where you're, <laughs> you're having a, a rational conversation. But, but to know that uh, if we put some, some things in place in the classroom that help them know what's expected, so you can have um, like social stories, for example, that you would do one-on-one -on -one with a child when they're not in a heightened space so that they know, okay, next time I am in a heightened space, I'm going to know where the quiet place in our classroom is. I can just go sit there till I'm calm again. And that they have something that they've learned that they can do the next time they're, they're in a space that they can't regulate. I was thinking in particular about, um, you know, that the teachers like pre-planning and again, like having that common understanding of we have a quiet spot, this student may need this, this student may need this, you know, how this connects to executive functioning. And a lot of this is about impulse. When the students, um, you know, go beyond their threshold, then they aren't able to plan or to make a decision that is always in the best interest of themselves and everybody else. So uh, one thing that uh, you mentioned the social stories, but doing that scripting say before recess, sitting down one-on-one -on -one with a child and, and talking through, okay, so this person might ask you to play. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? What does this look like? And talking through um, this, uh, this is how we make these choices and this is what it could look like. What if you ask somebody for their swing and they say, no, what are you, what are you going to do? What does that look like? What's, a, what's your alternate besides pushing them off the swing? What, what should we do instead? And really is that pre-planning? So there is a plan in place that child has thought about these things that might come up and then they have that ability to make that that choice when the situation arises because you know you have worked through that with them they sometimes think of it as the the external brain <laughs> you know doing that thinking uh, with the child ahead of time and talking through um, hot spots with them even if it's a child who's you know learning to go from the classroom to the washroom by themselves when they Previously, there's been an EA monitoring them every step of the way. Like, what does this look like when we get to the sink? What do we do in this situation we see? <laughs> you know, so we're, we're not looking at these tempting paper towels that we can throw around or the 
the toilet we can plug. We've thought through this. We're going to go to the sink. We're going to, you know, wash our hands and we're going to come back. And maybe that's a, even can be a transition step between the full on monitoring from the EA to the EA standing maybe partway down the hallway rather than right outside the bathroom door. I, I love what you, you've said. And when I think about the, like that scripting idea, one of the strategies that I would often use with kids that were struggling and it, you know, to recognize that, yeah, it doesn't work every time because they're developing the skills and it, uh, you know, it does take time, but to go through that visual of, you know, when I go outside for recess, these, it, this is what's going to happen if I make a positive choice and the consequence is going to be positive. And this is what's going to happen if I make a negative choice and these are the consequences. And so they start going through this problem solving process, which is part of that executive skill set development, where they start problem solving things before they happen, that, that planning ahead that they don't necessarily have that skill yet so it does take some time but I have found that visually representing that in a conversation with kids of the positive results of my actions and the negative results of my actions are just um, one of the best strategies I think that I, I've ever seen. You know it's something that's really struck me in in working with Barb and it's just one of those things that really clicked and connected for me is you know, sometimes it's a case, you know, when we see a student in the hallway of really examining our own triggers as well for behavior and thinking about, well, why is that? And even just recognizing like when a student's not doing what I expect them to do or what we agreed on, do I feel angry? Well, okay. I need to recognize that that's a trigger. That's something that may lead me as a, as the adult to a course of action that's not the most supportive for that student. There was a, an incident with a student and she said, you just have to keep your composure. It's all fine. You just have to keep your composure. And I thought that was just so lovely because she was giving the student, you know, she's recognizing, you know what, we do get triggered as adults. We just need to stay composed and that's what's going to support the student the most we have to give them the space to calm down we have to give ourselves the space to you know just like we would if we were in a, a conflict with another adult a little bit of time to breathe and then we need to we need to recognize our our own need to regulate I guess is kind of what I'm saying and as well as the child's need to regulate and it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And it's really important because often in schools, what you see is, you know, on a Friday, there's suddenly more behavior, can, behavior things happening in a school. And, and often it's, it's triggered by our response to students. I think uh, during report card time and stressful times in the school, we'll see these changes in behavior. And I, you know, I always say, well, you know, What's changing for us? Are we more short-tempered? Are we, are we being triggered by our students? Um, because we are tired. So I think that's a great advice of that, you know, remain composed. <laughs> you know, I, I had a, a teacher say once, you know, 
a lesson goes really poorly um, instead of blaming the students, you know, 90% of the time it's something that I did in my lesson and I need to go back and reflect and think about what went wrong, what, how did I, how could I have supported the student better? How could I have made those transitions more effective and efficient? And really going back and analyzing step-by-step, step, how did that go? Where did it break down? And I think it, that goes not only for lessons, but that goes for, you know, analyzing any situation. So we know we've come to the end here of the tier one and tier two supports. Before we shift into components six through 10, where we're talking more about those tier three and tier four supports, do you have any final comments on responsive behavior supports at that tier one and two level of a continuum? One of the things that I think really resonates for me here is the changing what we do, that it's not the student that needs to change. If we change what we're doing to support what, what they are, are needing from us, then behavior changes. Um, and when we are standing in that obstinate place where we're, you know, venting in a staff room uh, about a child's behavior, we kind of need to check ourselves at the door and recognize that we need to change what we do to change what they do. Yeah.